Welcome to the Doubles Only Tennis Podcast, where you learn the best doubles strategies to improve your game and win more matches. I'm your host, Will Bocek. This podcast, my website, and my weekly newsletter all focus on the goal of better understanding the sport of doubles and helping players like you improve faster through actionable advice that you can use in your very next match. My goal is to provide the best doubles strategy resources in the world. And to do that, I study, analyze, and work with players at every level of the game, all the way up to the ATP and WTA tours. If you enjoy this podcast, I've created double strategy products that go even deeper if you want to take your doubles knowledge to the next level. At the end of this episode, I'll explain more about them, or if you want to learn more now, go to thetennistribe.com slash products. Here's today's episode. In this episode, I interview Coach Sterling Strother. Sterling is a tennis coach who has worked with juniors in Cary, North Carolina for a long time. He's trained thousands of tennis players. He is also a best-selling author, and he has a new book out, which I will talk about in a second. But in this episode, you're going to learn how to improve your anticipation. You'll learn some new doubles drills and games that you've probably never heard before, Uh, And then you'll learn a new system called the Momentum Scoring System. So I'll talk about all that here in a second, but I wanted to briefly give you a few announcements. Um, So for those of you who only listen to the podcast, you're not subscribed to the newsletter or YouTube or Instagram, uh, I wanted to give you a couple of quick announcements on some things that are changing for us in 2024. So uh, I am starting to include new lessons in the newsletter every Thursday that are unique to the newsletter. So I wasn't doing this before. Uh, I'm going to do it now. So if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, uh, be sure to go to thetennistribe.com and subscribe so that you can get those lessons every single week. Um, They're only going to be published in the newsletter going forward. I'm also going to be doing two new short video lessons that are going to be published on Instagram, as well as uh, YouTube shorts. And then I'll be doing one long video lesson every week as well that's going to be published on YouTube. Uh, And I think all these will be published on Facebook as well if you prefer that social media platform. So January is NetPlay month. I surveyed all of you and uh, the majority of you told me that NetPlay is the thing that you're struggling with the most. So I already have a few lessons up on YouTube and Instagram, so you can check those out. Uh, and then subscribe to the newsletter as well. And then at the end of the month, I'm going to be releasing a new uh, video course that will be all about net play strategy. So I'm going to cover the mindset you need to have when you're at the net. I'm going to cover some common myths and kind of dispel those for you. I'm going to cover some different drills you can use to improve your reaction time and improve your feel at the net. We're going to cover different tactics for uh, offensive volleys, defensive volleys, touch volleys, overheads, um, all sorts of different stuff. So it's going to be um, a really comprehensive course that I hope you'll get a chance to enroll in. So keep an eye out for that later this month, uh, and I'll have some more announcements on some upcoming podcasts about it. But let's dive into this episode today. So this is uh, this is one of my favorite episodes I've done in a while, actually. Um, I think you're going to really uh, have your mind blown a little bit. I don't say that often. Um, Sterling is kind of an innovator in terms of tennis. He has been studying analytics for a long time, 
but he is able to kind of distill the analytics into something that's actually tangible for those of us who are not kind of math brains um, and can't really make sense of, of all of the numbers. So he goes through a few drills that he uses um, with this momentum scoring system, and it, it kind of changes the way you think about uh, being up 30 love in a game or being at 30 all in a game. And it helps you, uh, it's a game that helps force you to concentrate uh, a little bit more often. So you don't have those points where you kind of uh, take your foot off the gas, if you will. We also cover uh, his new book, The Art of Winning Tennis, which I'm about a third of the way through. Really like it a lot so far, so I highly recommend that. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, And then we cover, of course, his uh, tennis story. He has some advice for USTA teams or any sort of league doubles teams as well. Um, And then we uh, also dive into this specific thing that he teaches a lot of his players uh, in terms of keeping their eye on the ball. So a lot of us, when we hit a, a really good forehand, we stare at the ball um, as it leaves our racket. And Sterling thinks that that's not a good idea, actually. And he tells us where to look uh, instead and how it's going to improve your anticipation uh, on the court. So um, there's a lot of innovative ideas here that I think even if you just take one or two of them away, um, I think they're really going to have a big impact on your game. Uh, at the end, we talk about his favorite tournament, the racket he's using currently, uh, and how to make doubles more popular, of course. He has some uh, good ideas on that. He actually asked his um, younger son uh, why he liked the Bryan brothers and had some uh, some insights uh, from him. So that was kind of uh, a little fun part of the conversation as well. So uh, this is a long intro, but um, hopefully uh, it's worth it. So without further delay, enjoy this uh, wide-ranging conversation with Sterling Strother. All right, we are live. Today we have Sterling Strother on. Sterling, welcome to the show. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. So uh, I met you first three, no, probably like five years ago at this point uh, at PTR. And I remember we talked a lot about... um, Momentum scoring system, which you were big on at the time, uh, and, and I want to get into that a little bit later. Um, but we were talking, everything you do centers around transforming the practice court. In fact, your website is transformyourcourt.com. Is that right? It's transformyourpractice.com, yeah. Transformyourpractice.com. Right. So I wanted to start with just a very basic question. What does transform your practice court mean? So the reason why I picked the word transform is when you transform something, you're making it a thorough and dramatic change in the form and the appearance. Mm -hmm. So transforming your practice court literally means that you are dramatically changing the way it looks as far as the drills or challenges or games you play during practice. And so the way it feels mentally and emotionally changes Because the practice drills and challenges are now scored. There are consequences of winning and losing a point in practice or even consecutive points. And it introduces you back into a practice that challenges your decision-making process. So that's really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about transforming your practice. Mm -hmm. Why does the practice court need to be transformed for most people? 
What what are we doing wrong? So I think I think instead of saying what are we doing wrong, it's probably better to say like what have we misprioritized? Mm, right? Okay. So so I think that and we kind of coined this as there's a traditional tennis culture practice mm-hmm. court and then we've we've sort of countered that with the art of winning practice court which means so we're reprioritizing the way we play and compete on the practice court so so this is what i would say that the traditional tennis approach is the coaching prioritizes how you hit the ball over where when and why you 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 hit the shot okay mm-hmm. So in in our new book, The Art of Winning Tennis, we go into great detail about how traditional tennis culture has set up a practice court where most of the focus is on how good your shots are instead of how your shots affect your opponent Mm. positionally and what kind of response you're getting back from your opponent. Mm. And so the opponent has been basically taken out of the practice court environment for the most part. And mm-hmm. scoring competitively with consequences has been mostly omitted from the traditional practice court, the traditional mm-hmm. tennis culture practice court. This is one, and, and I was I was a part of that. Like I've I've kind of I've come out of that mind headspace mm-hmm. of just doing things without consequence or immediate feedback of consequence, right? Because so many times we hit, you know, we got a basket of balls as a coach and we're feeding balls and the player's not experiencing, we're not letting them experience the consequences of, of hitting a shot that you win the point or you lose the point, right? And, but this is what happens as a match. So I think that's why there, that's why there's something wrong with the practice court, if, if you want to put it that way. I just think mm-hmm. that we've misprioritized because there's things we do on the practice court that are important like repetition, but repetition without consequences is where we fall short Hmm. of developing a a practice court that looks and feels like the match court. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dive into all that Um, by consequences. So you say repetition without consequences. Um, What's an example of of a consequence just so (laughs) that the listeners can kind of better understand that? A consequence would be either you score a point or you lose a point once you hit a shot or a series of shots. Okay. And so instead of just as a coach, you know, we used to feed balls and we would work on where the ball's going and we work on spin and things like that. And we would just Mm -hmm. do it over and over and over again, but we weren't scoring it. So now an example of that would be, okay, you've got to make two shots in a row to this target with this type of spin. If mm-hmm. you make two shots in a row, you score the point, and maybe we play game scoring like 15, 30, 40. If you miss a shot, I get the point as your mm-hmm. coach. And okay. so you've got to win the game basically against yourself. I'm just the beneficiary of your error as far as mm-hmm. the point. But you're basically competing against yourself, trying to make two shots in a row, or sometimes it's four shots in a row. But we don't mm-hmm. really get much past that because we're. I'm trying to – stay close to what the data is saying, right? Mm-hmm. So four shots, uh, four, eight shots or less yeah, is about 90% of the points you play. So that's four shots for you. So we do a lot of right. two, a two plus two, things like that. And that's how, we, that's what I mean by consequence. Because mm. if, if the player gets feedback as far as they lose a point when they miss a shot, 
or they win a point if they make two in a row. Now they're starting to contextualize their technique, their improved technique, if you will. Mm. Okay, so, so there's context around improving technically or movement-wise. They have to do things specifically in order to score the point. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think something that like just kind of clicked for me, and, and I've I've done a lot of this myself because I'm familiar with your work and um and I, I, something that just clicked for me though while, while you said that was this is a way to actually measure your improvement. So, you know, if I'm at uh you know a club playing a match and I'll look over and see a coach giving a private lesson they'll be feeding 100 forehands, not scoring, not measuring any of it. But if you can play that game against your coach, hitting the forehands cross court with depth, with top spin, and you, let's say you lose that game, and then you lose it a little bit closer, and then two weeks later, you're winning that game, that's a way to actually measure your improvement on your forehand versus the traditional way of just, Hey, we're going to feed forehands for 10 minutes and we're going to feed back. And we have no way of knowing if they're actually getting better, but if you're hitting that target and measuring it, then people can get actually get better. So I would encourage listeners, if you take private lessons or clinics and you're not doing this, talk to your coach and come up with some kind of scoring system and implement this stuff that Sterling is talking about, because this is a way for you to actually measure uh, the way that you improve and then create some of these consequences that you're talking about. So uh, next I wanted to ask about the book. So the book just came out um, like a month or two ago, um, pretty recently here. The Art of Winning Tennis is the name. I'll link to it in the show notes for everyone listening so that you can uh, check it out and purchase. Um, I started, so I do all my books on Audible. So I started listening to it this morning. I'm probably um, maybe a, a third of the way through, halfway through. So I have some questions about the book specifically, but uh, yeah. tell us just how did the book come to be? Um, and tell us a, a little bit about your co-author as well. So I met I met Dan about five years ago. He actually contacted me, sent me an email. He had picked up my first book, Seven On Court Strategies to Experience Your Play State. That's on Amazon as well. But mm-hmm. he came across that book himself on a, while he was on holiday. He's from the UK. So he's reading through the book and he was a tactical and strategy expert worked with the RPT over in Europe, which is our form of like the USPTA or PTR. And he mm-hmm. would teach classes on the mental, emotional state of a player. So he came across my book. We got in contact for the last five years. We've been, We've been taking all the material I've had since 2011, all the games I've created, and we're sort of putting it together and and sort of framing it out and making it digestible, if you will. And the Mm -hmm. new book is something that I've had in me since I wrote my first one, which was in 2017. But I've been trying to stir through all of this information and put it into a context that was real for the reader, right? That was something that when they read it, they're like, wow, I can actually implement the things that I'm reading. It's not just a philosophy. It's not, it's not, it is a system, but it's not just something I just think about. It's actually something I can do something about. So the new book, it's taken about four years to write as far Mm -hmm. as like get it together. So it's, it will absolutely challenge the way you think about match play as well as 
think about how you're practicing and preparing for match play. So it introduces what most will find as new ideas of perceiving what happened in your match that influenced the winning and losing of your match, right? So we introduced what I call what I created as the momentum scoring system. So this this completely exposes the fraudulent game score as being both inflated and deceptive. Okay, mm-hmm. so making decisions about how you play the next point, if you're basing it solely on the game score, 30-all, 40-30, this is going to lead you to more of an emotionally charged decision, a very poor decision, in my opinion, as to how to play the next point. And the momentum score is actually the real score. It's the best score to decide how you're going to play the next point in order to increase or maintain your probability of winning it. And so this is really the, we start from the game. We talk about the game and how the game is being, how you negotiate the game in tennis. And then we talk about how the momentum score and the game score is completely the the momentum score gives you the game score, but the game score is this inflated idea. Uh, it's a fl- inflated scoring system that just distorts your perception about how to, yeah. what decision to make. So that's that's kind of what the book is about. That's kind of how it how it's happened. So it's a it's it's we've we've heard from people. It's not necessarily an easy read. In other words, you you want to you'll be able to read it over and over again and sort of mm-hmm. get a deeper understanding. The Audible is, to me, I listen to it, and I love to listen to Dan talk because he's from the UK. He's got that Queen's English. It's so cool to listen to. But even I, as an author writing the book, when I heard it on Audible, I started to really get a deeper understanding of what we had even written. And it's weird. It's weird to, to, to experience that. But I I found some new like it was like a breath of fresh air even for me going back on the court the next day with my players and doing this with them hearing mm-hmm. it on audible just brought it like alive so I'm really happy that you got the audible version yeah totally yeah it's been you. good yeah I'm gonna um printed even if you get the printed copy try to get the audible as well if you can because it will give mm-hmm. you a, a different perspective. Yeah, I think a lot of listeners obviously love Audible because they're listening to a podcast. Um, so it wouldn't be surprising if some of them purchased that. And I know a lot of them listen to either, you know, this podcast or, or you know, tennis books like The Inner Game or whatever it is um, on their way to matches to kind of get in the right mindset. So this could be a great one for that. And as I've gone through it this morning, I, I've al- already uh, had to like rewind 30 seconds, you know, a few times just to like, okay, I think I understood that concept, but I, I want to hear that again and really like stop what I'm doing and think about this, which is really, um, I don't know, the sign that's like something is there that you can listen to multiple times and and really has a deeper meaning um, and is getting at like the fundamentals of, of, of tennis. Uh, and I, I want to talk more about the scoring system in a few minutes, but um, before we dive deeper into the book and some of the the theories, um, tell us your your tennis story. How did you get started in tennis? Um, I know you're coaching in in Carolina now, um, so just tell us your your story about how you got started to where you are now. So I grew up playing tennis, but 
when I grew up in the 80s, we grew up playing multiple sports, most of us as kids, and and there were different seasons of sports, right? It's not mm-hmm. like today where you can just pick a sport and play it year round. So I grew up playing tennis. However, it was really my third sport. I was mostly a basketball and football player. I was a point guard. I was a quarterback. I was running plays on the field, right? So I was reading defenses. I was calling plays to disrupt and give the and give our team the highest probability of winning the game, right? So I wasn't, it wasn't really until I met my wife when I was 19 years old, okay? So we've been together a while. And so that began this journey of playing and and even coaching tennis seriously because my wife comes from a very competitive tennis family. She played Division I tennis, uh, college tennis at North Carolina State here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that's Mm -hmm. where we're from, from Cary. So I talk a, a bit more about my history in my first book, Seven On Court Strategies, but the main influence of my tennis coaching has been really from the perspective of a street of a strategy and tactics point of view mm-hmm. instead of a technically driven purpose, right? So I'm a huge proponent of sound technique in tennis. In fact, if players come to me on court, they're like, man, you are a stickler on good technique. Because I, you know, I at that at saying that uh, all of our technique and movement needs to be taught more with a tactical and strategic mindset because it's really worthless without that context. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid and a teenager and then a young man, when I practiced my shooting technique uh, in basketball, it was I was pretty religious about it. You know, I was out I was out in my backyard for two three hours every day, just shooting free throws, shooting jump shots, layups, moving. And I was a great shooter of the ball as well as a mover. But I found that what was even more important was being a great decision maker on the court during the game. Mm -hmm. So having a plan and a play in mind as I brought the ball down the court, this was what calmed my mind and settled my emotions. So Mm -hmm. whatever specific play that was what I was going to initiate to begin the process of scoring like a basket in basketball. This was the essence of competition, right? Mm -hmm. The most important reason to play and compete. And so the execution of that play was technical and there needed to be proficiency in your technique, right? But without the play in mind, the specific strategy, the technique of how to do it was really worthless, right? Mm -hmm. So, so when I so I coached for a long time, I was I was um, coached high school tennis. And in 2011, that's when I discovered data analytics on my own while I was coaching high school tennis. This was four years before I even knew who Craig O'Shaughnessy was. Yeah, because I didn't meet him until late 2014 and 2000, early 2015 at PTR. So mm-hmm. I was transforming everything I did with players on the on the tennis practice court and this was based on the strategic decisions that the analytics was showing me that was happening in a match. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I've got, I, I swerved into data analytics. It was almost like it, it, it was revealed to me like right in front of my eyes as I was watching a couple of my players play competitively. And that's when I sort of took off right there. And then when I met Craig, a lot of things happened there where, we formed a friendship and then I was on his first four shots. A lot of people mm-hmm. around the world started finding out about me and junior ten, junior tennis data because very mm-hmm. few coaches around the world were actually doing junior tennis tennis data. Yeah. Um, talk, I talk a little bit about the history of that on my podcast, the art, the, the tennis revolution 
Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of how I got started. I was a pure athlete growing up as a kid. I played like five different sports. So mm-hmm. I think that's why I look at coaching tennis a little bit different than maybe such from just a strict player's mind mind or headspace, mm-hmm. right? Because I play different sports. So I I see learning and playing the game a little bit differently. Now, obviously, I went through PTR, USPTA. I have my certifications and all that. But mm-hmm. to be I found that to be a really good coach, you've got to you've got to find mentor coaches that have been doing this a long time. That's what I did when I was younger. And I really studied them. Like I flew out to California, spent a week with Ken DeHart. I would spend time with, with coaches off the court during the symposiums Mm -hmm. uh, and ask them questions. How do you do this? How do you do it this way? And these were coaches from around the world, especially with PTR, you know, Spanish coaches, Italian coaches, European coaches. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, that's a great way to learn. So yeah, so you've got to do that, but you really, as a coach, you do need to find like how you coach should match who you are as a person, right? Mm-hmm. So I used to I used to be a little bit hesitant, like I don't know. I, I was as a tennis coach, I didn't grow up as a pure player, right? I didn't play in college, but. I found that the things that I could draw off of were very unique. They were uniquely different than being a player growing up and playing mm-hmm. the game competitively. Like I never really had an issue of coming out of myself and really focus on the person in front of me. So I don't have a lot of stories to tell about myself as a player. So I just lean on, okay, how do I make this player in front of me, whatever level they're at, 30, 4 0 8 UTR junior, a 12 UTR junior, what can I do as a coach to help them improve? So it's really less about me and what Sterling accomplished as a player. And it's more about how can I, as a coach and with my experience, sort of help this player understand who they are as a tennis player and how they can play, be a better player and a better competitor, more intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. Really. That's really what I'm after. Yeah. Yeah. And I like a lot what you said about technique as well, having that kind of uh, tactical mindset when you're thinking about technique, because it's it, it applies, I feel like, even more so in doubles, right? Um, because there's so yeah. many different tactics and strategies. There's more variables on the court. Um, but it's it's one of the reasons, like, you know, if I go play a, a USTA tournament, uh, you know, I've, I've played less recently, um, but over the last, you know, five to seven years, I've played a lot of adult USTA tournaments. And sometimes in these open draws, I'll play against these like division one college kids who in singles, they would wipe me off the court. Like they would beat me one and oh in about 20 minutes, but in doubles, I can actually beat them. And their technique is better than me on literally every shot, but I've got the tactics down and the strategy down that they don't have. Um, right. And sometimes I lose anyways, of course, cause they're that much better uh, technically, but um, I stay in the match and, and sometimes can get a win. And then the other thing that came to mind when you mentioned that is, is I see so many players at the, you know, three to four level adult um, club level players where they miss a shot. And then afterwards they kind of do a shadow swing as if it was something wrong with their technique when really they tried to hit it down the line when they should have gone cross court or they weren't even in the right position to hit the ball. Um, so a lot of times people, I feel like, 
focus too much on technique and not enough on kind of their, their positioning and strategy and shot selection and all these different things um, that, that I want to dive into with you here. Um, so a couple questions uh, that y'all kind of brought up in the book, and obviously we're not going to dive as, as deep as the book does, but um, I did want to bring some of these up. So the first one is watching the ball. So why is watch the ball bad advice? I used to say it all the time, and then I had to check myself because when when I started getting into the analytics of why points end and how they end, in competition, you will only watch the ball half the time. Mm-hmm. And actually, you want to see the ball instead of actually watch the ball. So you want to see the ball. So you need these the, – the, the cycle of the three phases is really like scanning, tracking, and focusing, right? That's That kind of encompasses seeing, right? So we, we do start off the book this way. We talk specifically about how to see the ball better. Uh, one of the things I like to say to my players is look for the spin of the ball coming out of your opponent's racket, which is, it sounds so, it's it's so much common sense there. But the problem mm-hmm. is that we we don't actually see the ball coming out of our opponent's racket because after we hit our shot, we look up. And then we immediately find the ball with our eyes, which makes total sense because your eyes are attracted to motion. So the ball is moving faster than your opponents in real mm-hmm. speed time. I talk a lot about this in my first book. So we we look up and we see the ball. We We kind of judge our shot. We go into judgment, subjective judgment of our shot. Is that was that good? Was it high enough? Was it was yeah. it wide enough? Mm-hmm. And we we don't look up toward our opponent. So we talk about when you hit the ball and you look up, look past your ball. That would be scanning the ball. So you mm-hmm. see the ball, but it's kind of blurry because you're scanning the ball, and then you're 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 looking to focus your eyes on your opponent. Maybe their racket. Maybe they're going to their forehand. So you look to the left side if they're a right-handed player. You look at their racket coming through. Then you're going to see the ball come out of their racket faster. One of my first mentors was the late great Vic Braden, and he they did a study back in the '70s that if you see the ball come out of your opponent's racket within two to three feet of the ball leaving your opponent's racket. The human brain can calculate up to 90, 95% accuracy where the ball is going to bounce on your side of the court. Mm-hmm. When he said that, I like I was younger, but it, it stayed with me. So when we started looking at why do players respond late to their opponent's shot, it's not because they're slow physically necessarily. It's not because they have the right shot prepared. It's that their reaction was too late because they looked at their shot too long after they mm-hmm. even looked not too long. They just looked at their shot after they hit it and they they didn't see the ball coming back to them until the ball was pretty much at the net where the net was. Right. And that that's milliseconds, which it, I'm sorry, that's not milliseconds. That's tenths of a second. Right. Mm-hmm. If you think that the a human a human being can move nine feet on a tennis court within one second, 
that they can move a half a second around four and a half feet, which is the width of a doubles out. If you if you look at your shot after you hit the ball, you're going to lose anywhere from two to four tenths of a second. That's like three feet of movement that you're late on. So you're going to wow. respond. You're going to respond late. Then that means you're going to move faster. That means you got to break or slam on the brakes or slow down, decelerate faster, which you could lose your balance, obviously. And so that's how it affects your shot. So the eyes, to train your eyes to look up at your opponent after you hit the ball, scan the ball, but focus on your opponent, hmm. that is the most, that's probably the most critical thing you need to train as a tennis player and will, honestly. How many coaches, and I'm guilty of this too, so I'm not just pointing the finger out and not pointing them back at me. Yeah. I used to do this too, but but I had this revelation of, wait a minute, I've, you, I've got to train a player's eyes. I can't just assume that once they hit the ball, they're looking at their opponent because mm-hmm. the ball is too tempting to look at because, like I said, right. we're, we're, our eyes are attracted to motion. So that's, that's really why – saying watch the ball you've got to do more than that and i created a a game a challenge called ball player that's Mm -hmm. in my first book so you call out you say ball out loud when you see the ball come out of your opponent's racket you say ball and then after you hit and look up you literally say to yourself player so what that when you say it audibly it triggers your eyes to move Mm -hmm. and then we go from saying it out loud to saying it softly to ourselves to trying to hear it in our head. Yeah. And that's the sort of the progression of habitually training yourself to, tr- to move your eyes to the right object at the correct time. Hmm. I'm going to start um, when I get film, when I'm doing clinics of, of these club players, I'm going to start looking at the, the head of the net players and see what they're looking at when their partner hits. I bet, what would you think probably 95% of them are, are watching their partner's shot rather than watching the opponent? Absolutely. In fact, yeah. if you're on the receiving side of, of your opponent's ball, it's really both players should be tracking, it should be player, player, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm at the net and I'm looking and the ball has now crossed my opponent's back, so they just hit a ball over, I'm looking at the player that's receiving the ball. But after mm-hmm. that player, strikes the ball and it goes past me, I've got to look at the I've got to look at the other net player mm, if we're both yeah. at the net, right? So I've got to go player player. That's that's how my eyes track. So many doubles players, especially if you're at the 3-0, 4-0, and it's ladies and men, but we, we're tempted to watch the ball as it as it goes past us. And then we look at our own partner striking mm-hmm. the ball. By the time we turn around, we've lost a half a second. Mm-hmm. Of response time. That is huge, right? 0.5 seconds. That's about four and a half feet of movement time that you've given up. Um, Not not just that. It's really dangerous to look back at your your partner hitting you. Yeah, you might get hit. (laughs) You're either going to get hit or it goes past you and then somebody poaches and now they hit you back. So you you don't want to get a fuzz sandwich that way. Yeah, yeah. So doubles or singles, this will save you three feet. So when people talk about like, Oh, that player's got such good anticipation. They're probably just not following their shot, not following the ball on their shot. They're they're hitting, looking at the opponent to save that three feet. Um, and they're not actually faster. They're just better at anticipating because they're using the system. 
right? Their reaction time is faster. They're not just saving space, like three feet, three, four feet. They're, they're saving time. Right. right. So, uh, um, I, I still play against my competitive juniors and they're like, coach, you're so fast, but you're so old. <laughs> and I said, yes, I may be old, but let me tell you something. My eyes are much faster than yours because yeah. I'm tracking the correct object at the correct timing. And you're still watching and judging your shot, whether it's good or bad or not. So I'm right. in a, I'm an objective observation mode and you're in a judgment mode. Mm. And so I'm like, you need to move out of your house of judgment. Stop judging your shots. You need to move into the house of observation start observing. Like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. And then and how do how where, how's the ball coming out of my racket? Right. What kind yeah. of, you can, you can pick up spin before you, uh, your opponent even hits the ball. If you're looking at, how they go high to low or, or low to high. But, mm-hmm. but yes, I mean, the, in doubles, especially, and this is a double show. So we want to talk, we want to put this in that context. You, you can be lightning fast and have like, you know, two knee injuries. If you just use your eyes better mm-hmm. and you stop looking at the ball as it's going away from you. You should only mm-hmm. be looking at the ball when it's coming toward you. And the only mm-hmm. way you can do that more effectively is if you're looking at the your opponent receiving the ball. And that is, that, I mean, if no one gets anything out of this podcast today, they should take that one to heart and really yeah. put that at the number one list, uh, number one on their list to improve. I need to prove mm-hmm. how I use my eyes when I play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like a, a simplified version of this is is probably um, that I've talked about on the show previously, but you're taking it to like kind of the next level is is the server's partner. I, I'm always telling people to to just stare at the returner as the serve goes into them, and is and you can study their body language. And you know if I know they have a weak backhand, as soon as they turn to their backhand side, I know I can be more aggressive as the net player. Or as soon as they turn to their forehand side, if they've burned me down the line four times on a weak second serve, as soon as they turn to that side, I know I need to shift over a little bit because that's where they're going. So um, you can do that not only on the serve, but um, all of these other shots as well, kind of during the point. Uh, so next question, this is very related, but um, if you want to elaborate on kind of how this um uh, integrates into people's games in other ways is uh, opponent-based thinking. It's something you talk about early in the book, um, and I'm sure you dive into a little bit deeper later on. Um, but it, it sounds like this watching the opponent instead of the ball is part of opponent-based thinking. Uh, one thing that came to mind for me as I was uh, listening to the book earlier today was the recent 60 Minutes interview with Djokovic. He talked about I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but he talked about how he's studying his opponent literally on changeovers when they come back from bathroom breaks, um, when they're drinking their water, when they're getting their towel. He's constantly studying them to figure out, uh, you know, any little edge that he can get. And he's the best player in the world. So if he's doing it, we probably should, too. But what is opponent opponent based thinking and how can we implement that on the doubles court? So Novak Djokovic is probably the best at opponent-based thinking because he is he understands what he can do, but when he's competing, 
he's not focusing on himself necessarily, right? The, the focus is turned outward to what is his opponent doing? He's trying to figure out what is his opponent thinking. Um, I think one. this is probably one of the things that I do best as a human being. And I think this is why my coaching is very unique is because when I grew up, I grew up, my father was in the flower. He's a professional floral designer. And I grew up in the flower business and we always would have to plan for weddings. He's um, and in different events for the weekend. Right. So -hmm. we would have to do a lot of prep prep work. And I would do something. All of a sudden, I'd be standing around, and he's like, what are you doing? I go, I'm waiting for you to tell me what to do. He goes, no. He goes, you need to learn to read my mind. I was 14 years old. I'm like, what are you <laughs> talking about, Dad? Like, I can't read your mind. He goes, yeah, you can. He goes, you can read what I'm going to tell you because you need to pick out the patterns of what we need to accomplish. There are patterns every week. We do the same things every week to prepare for these events, mm-hmm. and you need to you need to pick up on, okay, what have you accomplished? What's left? Things like that. So, so Djokovic is so good at this and on the, on the tennis court, right? So when we are thinking more about our opponent than ourselves and our subjective opinion about how we are performing our shots, this is the opposite of opponent-based thinking. This is this is me-based thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our opponent, our opponent is why we are competing. I mean, they're the very reason that we're on the court. So, but most of the time in practice, we're focused on ourselves because that's the way the practice court is set up for the most mm-hmm. part. And this is why we differentiate between traditional tennis culture and the art of winning. We're focused on ourselves, we're focused on our individual shots and how good or bad they are. So mm-hmm. this kind of practice does not, A, train our eyes to look up at our opponent because there's not really anyone on the other side of our practice most of the time. So mm-hmm. we're, we hit a shot, we look up, we look at the ball. So as a coach, here's the way I've adjusted this. When, when I'm doing a fed drill to a player, I'm feeding the ball in the direct line of where they need to look next. So let's say I'm feeding from deuce and I want them to hit to add. I feed the deuce and I move my body as a coach to add. Hmm. So after they hit to add, they see me again. Okay. So So you want them to hit and then look at you. Absolutely. But if I'm just standing in one place off the side of the court as a coach and I fed a ball, well, they're naturally going to look at the, when they look up, they're going to naturally look at the ball that they just hit. Now, sometimes this is valuable actually especially when you're just beginning the game and I have young kids, I want them to see the flight of their ball, right? I don't sure. want to see what kind of spin did they create? What do they spin? Did they create like a fade, like, and Chuck mm-hmm. Tom down in Atlanta with um, congruent tennis method. He, he has rebirthed this idea of hitting fades and draws for me. So fade mm-hmm. is like, in, like a ball that tails off to the right. If you're a right hand player and draw comes sure. back, it's like sure. a golf is, is made famous by golf, but He's yeah. done a fabulous job of that. So what I'm doing is, uh, but I'm trying to train a player to look up at me. So if, we, if we're consistently practicing in an environment where we're constantly judging our own shot, we're, we're in a me-based thinking mindset, right, or headspace. So mm-hmm. we want to train in a way where we're, we have our opponent in mind. And that's what opponent-based thinking is. Now, these other things, like when you're watching a match and you're on changeovers, 
yeah, as a junior player, you should be looking over and seeing if that your opponent is tired or if they're frustrated or if they're calm. Like you mm-hmm. need to sort of pay attention to the body language during the point, during the game on changeovers. What is your opponent? What kind of body language is your opponent sending you? Because we we're very bad as human beings at hiding our emotions. Mm-hmm. OK, those are reserved for really world class poker players. But we're not good at this on the tennis court. It, yeah. and tennis invokes a lot of emotion. So you can figure out if you're watching, if you're paying attention, if you're giving your attention towards your opponent. And that's that's opponent based thinking is giving your attention. And prioritizing your opponent over yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that I, I've. What's that? When you're competing. Yeah. Yeah, th- this is something that I've, um, and I still have to continue to improve, but I've worked on it a lot over the last, you know, five five or seven years or so um, myself, because I do see so many players, and I, I get into this habit myself where, like, they're so focused on just hitting a clean ball and, like, playing good themselves that they're not worried about, you know, they don't even pick up on the fact that, like, that opponent is really good at rallying from the deuce court. Like you should probably try to lob down the line and get them to the ad court. Like they don't, they don't even pick up on that. They're just so worried about hitting a clean forehand cross court, yep. even if it's a bad matchup and they're going to lose. And it's something that, uh, yeah, I mean, I still fall into that trap when I'm like not at my best. Um, you know, it takes a very conscious effort to implement this um, similar to the, the watching the opponent instead of the ball. Um, it's, it kind of goes against our natural human tendencies, um, but it's more effective. So we need to make a conscious effort if we do want to improve on some of these things. Um, so next question, uh, when we make an error, we think it's a technique problem and it's our fault. So that's, uh, roughly a quote from the book. I don't know if I got it exactly right. So I'll say it again. When we make an error, we think it's a technique problem and it's our fault. So why is that wrong? And what mindset should we have when we do make an error on the court? We all make errors. We lose as many points or about as many points as you win, right? Mm-hmm. So the closeness of a match is so real. Every game is close. Every point is close. You are and your opponent are so closely linked together. And so what you do affects them and what they do affects you. But we are blind to this most of the time because we're so self-absorbed. We have this self-absorbed attitude of it's all about me and and the great shots I can produce and the better shots I hit, the more likelihood or probability I'm going to win the point. And that's so far from the truth. It's just a it's a distorted perception is what it is. Mm -hmm. Right. So we. This attitude, this self-attitude about my great shots, we make an error like, oh, well, it's 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 just on me. And this whole mm-hmm. idea, I mean, this is something that really I had already been on the vein of thinking about how absurd unforced and forced errors were. Mm-hmm. But when Craig O'Shaughnessy did a, a talk on this about four years ago, it was it was the set, it was the year right before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. He 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 basically talked about how absurd unforced and forced errors are and that it's all based on subjective opinion of, of who's 
who's judging that, right? So we yeah. we hit a shot, we make an error, we're like, oh, it's unforced. Yeah, they didn't because we don't have our opponent in mind. It goes back to opponent-based thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so what happens is because we practice with the main focus of creating better shots, when we play a match and lose a point, our mind space, our head space is filled with thoughts that it's totally our fault, right? Mm-hmm. I'll rehearse this forehand. Man, I worked on my forehand <laughs> all week with my coach. And this daggone thing is breaking down every time. Well, wait a minute. Is it is your forehand, is it the forehand return or is it the forehand after you serve? Right? Which forehand is it? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it the forehand that you're running wide on? Is it the forehand that you're getting jammed on? Mm-hmm. Is it the one you have to run forward on? Is it the forehand you have to go back and receive a high forehand, a, a ball that bounces up? Like we're 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 not, we need to be more specific about which forehand are we having problems with. But the problem is we can't really determine that because we have generically sort of uh, reserved our decision to, it's our forehand, Mm -hmm. right? We didn't, it wasn't the high loopy ball our opponent hit to us. Well, we didn't even see the high loopy ball because we were still judging the drive that we just hit to them or the loopy ball we hit to them. We're judging that. It wasn't deep enough. So we don't see the high loopy ball come back and then we don't move in time. So most of our errors, if you will, are really, they are self-inflicted, but for different reasons, not because we didn't practice it enough is because we're not noticing what's coming back from our opponent. Mm -hmm. So if you, for example, in doubles, if you know the average rally length in a doubles point at all levels is four shots or less, then you're going to focus on how you send your first two shots as a team. Okay. So your, your first two shots that you play in the point, that's where consistency and accuracy begin. Are you being consistent and accurate on the first two shots? Let me give you a personal story about this. So mm-hmm. I I sometimes go out on Wednesday nights and I'll play with the guys and they're most of them are 4-0. There's a few three fives in there, 4-0, and there's some a few four fives. So good level player, medium level player. Um, and so when I play, if whoever I'm playing with, I'll play with one of the other guys, right? And I'll say, yeah. look, here's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on making the first two shots of every single point. We are not going to miss on our first two shots. And we need to have a mind, we have to need, we need to have in mind where we'd like to hit those first two shots. So you need a plan. You need a you need to know where you're going to hit it, right? Mm-hmm. But the key is you need to reduce your errors on your first two shots. And it is amazing to me, Will that I haven't lost with my partner ever (laughs) in three years. Yeah. Because I get my partner to buy into making the first two shots a very point. And then they start to realize, wait a minute, Sterling, most of these points are ending four shots or less. I said, I told you, like, I told you this was going to happen. Like I've seen this happen for 13 years. Right. And so what happens is, we, and then if we make our first two shots, our objective is to make the next two. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're building this two plus two every every point. First two, 
Then if we get through those, we're going next to. And it's so interesting that we watch our our opponents. They start they start pulling the trigger too early. They go mm-hmm. down the line instead of going cross court. You know, yeah. they hit the volley right back to us, or they hit the volley. They try to hit an angle volley instead of hitting a volley down the middle. Right? They try to hit a smash to the corner instead of smash down the middle. Right? And so, just the pure idea of being consistent on two plus two. You're going to, as a player, you just need to go out and do it. You need to go try this, okay? Mm-hmm. And and you need to start to be aware. If, once you start trying this, you're going to be aware of how, sh- points short, or how short points are. And you'll be like, holy cow. Yeah. This is actually happening. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. It, I remember so the first time I sat down and, like, charted a, a USTA doubles match. I sat down and just wrote down the rally length of every point and – uh, cause I, I had heard the numbers probably from Craig or somebody sure. and I was like, well, they did like, this is, it was actually a, a, a ladies match. And I was like, they have a, none of them have great serves. Like they have a lot of long rallies. It's not going to be. And the average was like 3.7 or something. Yep. It was, right. it was super low. Yeah. Um, there so were some it, long it is, rallies, but the, there were, there are going to be some long rallies, in yeah. but for yep. the most part. They're, they're, they're eight shots or less. 90% yeah. of the points are eight shots. That's that's four shots for you and your partner, right? So right. if you go two plus two, get the first two, then shift your mind to the second two. And it's it's the one-two sequence, right? And mm-hmm. it's funny, it's funny, Will. If I, if I start missing a few, I go back to counting. So mm-hmm. I'm returning serve, and I'm returning serve against a, a 4-0, 4-5. Pretty good spin, pretty good pace. But I'll go, you know what? I'm going to count when I hit this. So I'll go right when I hit it, I'll go one. And then the, if it comes back to me, I go two. Got it. Hmm. Right. And and then my partner's kind of doing the same thing. He's got the same idea in mind, but I don't miss. It's crazy. Yeah. Like I'm, I know I'm a professional tennis coach. I, I hit, you know, 1.5 million tennis balls a year because I yeah. still, I still actually hit balls with, with my, with my students. But I'm telling you when I go to counting, my nerves go down. Like I'm a human being. I get nervous too, even playing against these guys. Cause what are they trying to do? They're trying mm-hmm. to show up the pro, right? They're trying to beat the pro. They're coming yeah. out. Right. And, um, and they, they like to see me miss. Cause I, yeah. I got you, you know? Yeah. But so, I, so I'm trying to, you know, avoid that. Obviously I'm like, you know, no, I want, I mm-hmm. want to see if you, I want to see if you can actually beat me. I don't, I want to yeah. try to reduce my errors on my side. Yeah. And, and I'm paying attention to what they're hitting me. So if they hit a really wide serve, really nice serve, I'm I'm one and I'm high and heavy cross court or I'm high and heavy down the line. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have a plan, but I'm literally counting. And so that's the one to reset uh, strategy I talk about in the first book, seven on mm-hmm. strategy. Yeah. And I, I like this idea of having a, a, a plan for your first two shots. And I, I would say um, to listeners, like, so if you're the server, and um your partners at the net each of you obviously you have a plan as the server for your first shot you're going to serve wide body t whatever it is but then your plan as a team should probably be you know the net player gets a volley on the next shot right ideally but then you should have a plan as the server if it gets by the net player like what am i doing on this next shot so that that you each have your own kind of second ball plan um, and then same for the return team. The returner obviously is in a more reactive state, but 
they need to have their plan to return, you know, solid over the net strap, or I'm going to lob this one down the line or whatever it is. And then both the returner's partner and the returner should have a plan. If the second ball gets to me, this is, is my, my kind of plan a and plan B, depending on the type of ball that comes back. Yes. Um, and I, th- I think having that plan is just gonna, um, even if you can't execute it some of the time, I think it will, uh, for sure help. Um, so we've Can talked a lot about one, mindset. Yeah, let Go me ahead. I'll say you one thing else? about that because, well, yeah. I, I coach a lot of like USTA teams. The teams will come to me and they say, hey, Sterling, help us. We want to win the win the win the you know conference championship or whatever. Yeah. Whatever division they're in. So the, section, like, right, yeah. the first thing you need to do is you need to team up partners and you need to stick with those teams. Mm. Like you don't need to vary on too much. And the reason why is because you need players to play together long enough so they learn to communicate these things that you just talked about. What's mm. the plan, right? If I'm constantly, as a captain of a USTA team, if I'm constantly changing my lineup and putting different players with different people and they don't play together that often, there's going to be a severe uh, lack of communication of what's mm-hmm. happening. And 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 that's one of the things. My suggestion in, in, when you're doing this is – Pick when you play doubles, stay with a partner, play with them long enough, you know, mm-hmm. and establish this because you're going to, you're going to also too, as a doubles player, your, your objective will go back to the opponent base. But, but when, when you're playing doubles, you're really the fourth most important person on court, right? You should be every shot you play should, you should be trying to make your partner look really good. Right. Yeah. Right? And so if I if we're doubles partner, every shot I hit, I'm trying to make Will look good, get put mm-hmm. him in a position. Every shot you hit, you're trying to make me look good. And that way we're both trying to make each other look good and we're going to play mm-hmm. amazing together. But mm-hmm. if you're not playing with that headspace, that that sort of thinking in your headspace, you're going to be start to focus on yourself too much. You're going to become self-absorbed. And then when you lose the match or you make errors, you'll be like, I let down my partner. I did this, you know, it's all yeah. about me. I We lost the match because of me. Well, that's actually so far from the truth. This is distorted perception mm-hmm. because it takes two to lose a, a doubles match, right? And and if I'm getting every ball, well, maybe my partner needs to look to take more of those balls away from me, mm-hmm. right? Or coach yeah. more, right, if it's I'm too- getting picked on. But so, yeah, so I just wanted to, just wanted to yeah, say no. that. I think that's an important point to something to point out when yeah yeah competitively as teams absolutely yeah yeah i think you know having a, it's something that i've learned more and more about talking to coaches as well as some of the the pro players i've had on the podcast is like how important the communication between um doubles partners is because i you know, it's it's something that sounds obvious and seems obvious, but there's so many deeper layers to it that you can learn more and more. Like I, I had Rajiv Ram on after he won the U.S. Open uh, several months ago, and he talked about how he will tell his partner, Joe Salisbury, you know, hey, I'm not really feeling it today. And like when he said that, I was thinking to myself, I don't think I would ever tell my doubles partner that. Like I wouldn't want them to know that I'm not feeling good. Like it's my responsibility to get up for the match, but he's really just being honest. Like, and if like he slept poorly or 
his energy's low, like, and Joe can help pick him up, then that's beneficial for the team as a whole. So like me not being willing to share is actually hurting the team rather than trying to put it all on myself. So the the communication is just communicating that thought actually relieves you of the pressure and tension that too, of, yeah. of having that, right? So you've right. you've actually released that tension and pressure up to your opponent. Your opponent, if if you you guys are are good together, they can absorb that and then just give you and say, hey, it's okay. You know what? It's good. You we got that out. Now let's let's develop a plan now from here. Mm-hmm. So so just saying it mentally and emotionally relieves you of that pressure. And that's why it's so important because you're you're actually being honest and honest frees you up. Yeah. Now you can be now you can play carefree, free of care, mm-hmm. instead of trying to play careful. Yeah. Full of full of care. <laughs> um, so I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're running on like an hour now. Uh do, do you have time for, for a handful Let's more questions? Going. Absolutely. Okay. So we've talked a lot about mindset. I wanna um shift our focus to the actual uh, practice court, some uh, okay. things that people can go and implement next week. Uh, what are some of your favorite doubles drills or games that people can can implement? Um, and I know I, I sent you a few notes before. Yeah. Uh, sometimes people are practicing with two people working on doubles, three or four. So you can take it any direction you want. Okay. So I think one of my most favorite, I played this a lot with my high school girls when I used to coach high school tennis. It's a game mm-hmm. called Stinger. A stinger. Mm-hmm. And, and Stinger is um, you have players hit a second serve that's kind of spinny and slow, and the return player stings it cross court. They hit like a driving shot deep if they can get it deep, or they, they get it a float or two, and then they come in. So they basically mm-hmm. are returning and volleying. And okay. their partner, maybe if there's four people, their partner's already there. So the return team is getting to the net first and putting the serve team in a position of one up, one back immediately, right at the beginning mm-hmm. of the point. Mm-hmm. And that puts enormous pressure on the serve team, especially on the server. After they serve, they now they're now they're having to go to an S1 for a shot after the serve, and they're having to pass two players. Mm-hmm. So we played a lot of that. And so my my girls' doubles teams had an 88% win percentage. Mm-hmm. We we didn't lose doubles matches because yeah. every time we saw a second serve, we hit the stinger and came in. Oh, and, interesting. Yes, and, and it put enormous mental and emotional pressure on the server. They started thinking, I need to make more first serves because if I hit a second serve, here comes the stinger, here they're coming in. Yeah. This is a great game. You can play it with two people, three people, or four people. Mm-hmm. Um, the other game I like to play. Can, can I ask a question about yeah, Stinger ahead. real quick? Yeah, um, can the server serve in volley, or is that yes. is it just kind of so, so? There's no rules. You're just playing it out. The only rule is the returner has to come in after the return. Yes, if the returner does not come in on the return, the return team loses the point. Loses the point. Okay, and and if the server can lob on the serve plus one. Sure. Sure. Okay. Because that's okay. A, because that's a part of the decision of you hitting a a approach shot return a return approach shot. That's part right. of your decision. Do you come all the way into the service line or do you sort or of how do you cover in? the lob? 
Yeah. yeah. How do you, do you, do you slow up at the 60 foot line or mid court and look for mm-hmm. the swing volley or the smash of the lob coming back? How does mm-hmm. your opponent react to your stinger? I'm sorry. How does your partner at the net react to your stinger? Like, mm-hmm. are they on top of the net or are they playing off the net a bit? And you start to pick up the, the, the tendency of what the serve player is going to do. Are they going to mm-hmm. lob it? Are they going to loop it? Are they going to go down the line? Are they going to try to drive an angle? Are they going to try to rip it down the line past your net partner? Hmm. So okay. there's a so yeah, if you're going to learn a lot about that, and this goes back to opponent based thinking. If you're playing these games with the opponent in mind, you're going to start to pick up on how to play this game better. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, that's, and that's then a, you're about to say an, another uh, doubles drill. Yeah, I think I think intensity is my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. You can play this. Um, a coach can play this with a group of players. That's probably the best way to play it. Um, if you have, if you're just playing it with with just players, you need at least four players. Okay. Um, basically, you have you have a line of players in the doubles alley, one or the other. You have two players that are back on the opposite court on the baseline. Some uh, one of the back players or someone off the court, like a coach, is going to feed a, a poach volley to the first player in line. They come in, they poach volley, and they have to play out the point one versus two. So they're at the net, and the two their two opponents are on the baseline. Okay. So the person that comes in, they do a poach volley, and then they have to play at the net. So what it does is it develops volleys, swing volleys. Law uh, smashes the two mm-hmm. players that are back either lob or they can pass. Mm-hmm. Um, they only get the singles court, I guess. Yeah. So the doubles two back players, the two back yeah. players get the singles line and the one person that poaches and comes in plays the doubles alley. Now, if the, if the player coming in makes a uh, wins, the first point, they get a lob. So they get okay. a lob. They got to smash it. And then they got to win that point. When they win two points in a row, they run over and take one of the players on the baseline's spot, and the player that's closest to the sideline will come back and get in line, and then they go through the drill that way. Okay. But I, but I have seen. I'm going to make a video. I don't know if I have a video out there about it, but if anybody listening to the podcast wants to know more about the game, if you're a coach listening, or a player, or a team, if you'll just you can find me. You can you can yeah. find on the internet. We'll just include send, your your yeah. website and everything. Go to my website. Send people, me an email. Find yeah. me on Instagram. Send me a message, and I will take you through that game. It is one of the most phenomenal games I've ever played, um, as far as with a group of players or even learning doubles, because there's mm-hmm. so many shots that you will have to learn and master at the same time, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a point situation. So there's a lot of competitiveness there. Um, I, I attribute that game. I mean, we played that game every single day, every single practice of my six years of coaching varsity high school tennis. We played that game every single practice. We ended practice with it. Sometimes we began practice. It just gets the blood flowing, but it gets everyone sharpened into the, all the different shots that they have to play in doubles. Mm-hmm. So that's those two games I would suggest, I guess, first. Awesome. Awesome. So, I want to talk about um, the momentum scoring system and then we'll do some of kind of the rapid fire questions. Um, So just explain kind of at a high level what the momentum scoring system is. And then I want to ask a couple of specific questions about it. 
Okay, the momentum scoring system is you are you are trying to win consecutive points in a row. Mm-hmm. So when you win a point, you are at plus one. If you win another point, the next consecutive point, you're at plus two. If you lose a point, you're at minus one. If you lose two points in a row, you're at minus two. We go, we we extend it to plus three or minus three, and then we reset back to zero. And the reason why is because if you win three points in a row, you, according to the game score, you've either won the game or you are at 40 love, or if you're down 15-40, you're at 40-15. Three in a row is all you really need maximum to win a game. But the goal is to win two points in a row. Mm. So in the momentum scoring system, we call winning one point is called a direction point. You're moving in the direction of momentum. When you win two points in a row, it's called a momentum point. You have now you now have the momentum to win the game. You have that winning percentage going in your favor. When you win three points in a row, we call it a conversion point. But the goal is to win momentum points, two points in a row. And so the momentum score is never tied like the game score perceives you to be, like 15-all or 30-all. Mm-hmm. Because this is why the momentum score is the real score and the game score is the is the diluted score, the inflated score. At 30-all, you are not tied. You are either plus 2, 30-all, plus 1, 30-all. Minus one thirty all or minus two thirty all, so mm-hmm. there's four different scenarios for thirty all, and your decision at plus two thirty all is going to be slightly different of your decision at minus two thirty all when you play the next point and try to win and get to forty thirty, mm-hmm. or or it becomes to thirty forty. So this is why the momentum score is powerful because it actually it tells you accurately how many what is the margin of separation of points won or lost between you and your opponent. Mm-hmm. Because if I just go by the game score thirty all, and I'm not tracking momentum score, I'm going to think the score is tied, and I'm probably going to push really hard to win the next point because I'm thinking it's super important. Which obviously it is important, but if you're plus two thirty all, and we've run the data on this for the past seven eight years, mm-hmm. at the art of winning, we've discovered that if you're plus two thirty all, you have you begin the point with only a twenty five percent chance of winning that point, because mm-hmm. it's very difficult to win three points in a row. And so if you're plus two 30 all, which means you've won the last two points, you've down love 30, you won the last two points, you have a 25% beginning or starting winning percentage probability. Now, you can negotiate that 25% higher by making a really good decision of where you're going to place the serve. So you're, you're serving to deuce. You definitely don't want to serve it to the player's forehand if you can help it. If they have a really good forehand, you want to try to stay away from serving it to their forehand. Mm -hmm. You want to try to serve it into their backhand. That means you may have to take a little bit off your first serve just to place it if you you don't have the accuracy on your first serve. Because the problem with this is when your opponent is at minus 230 all, so guess what we've discovered through the data? That a player will play better 
when they're down in the momentum score than when they're up in the momentum score. And the Mm -hmm. reason why is pretty clear. When you're up in the score, when you've won two points in a row, your confidence is high and therefore your concentration drops. So concentration and 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 concentration and confidence move in opposite directions typically. So when mm. you are down minus two, you've lost the last two points. You're like, hey man, I need to dig in here. Your concentration goes up, your confidence is down a bit because you've lost the last two points, but your concentration rises. So mm. you play the point better when you're down in the score. The only exception is if you check out. And you go like, oh, woe is me. And you go into a downward score, like my shots fuck sure. today. Nothing's going in. Well, yeah, like obviously your 75% yeah. chance of winning the point is going to decrease automatically to 50%. Just yeah, by you're, that you're tanking. Yeah. You're going to tank it, right? Right at yeah. the beginning, you hit a shot, you're tanking it. You're tanking your winning per probability percentage. And so the momentum score gives us our probability the probability leads us to better decisions about how we're going to play the first two shots. If we, because mm-hmm. 60% of the points are going to end right there anyway. So mm-hmm. you've got to prioritize your thoughts and the momentum scoring system is the perfect way to prioritize your thinking. So that is, I know I went a little long on that. No, no, no. That's a very helpful explanation. And I feel like, um, so it sounds like from what you've said, the the likelihood of a, a player or, you know, in our case for the listeners, a doubles team, the likelihood of them winning a point is is correlated with their level of concentration. And if they've won two points in a row, their confidence is going to be high, but their concentration generally is going to be lower. So what we have to do is create a system that keeps our concentration high after winning two points in a row. And that's what this system does. That's what this game uh, scoring does, um, which makes a ton of sense. So for so for the scoring for for uh, doubles players listening to this, if there's four players on the court, yes. we're gonna to, to implement this game. We go out and play normal points, and we totally ignore the traditional game scoring, and we score one if we get three points in a row. Is that right? Well, actually, here here's the what I found is the best way to do it. So. Yeah. When I developed the scoring system went, how can you apply the scoring system and how you, because you're always going to have the game score. Like we're never going to get rid of the game score. It yeah, is yeah. what it is. It's a part of tennis. It's a part of the tradition, of but how can we manage the game score and keep it in the right perspective? So what I did was I created the competitive intelligence games and these are momentum scoring games and we do have some of the games where we score the game score, but we're trying to keep the momentum score in the back of our mind. So, mm-hmm. so for example, one of the games is called Deuces Are Wild. So mm-hmm. if you go out as four players, you're going to play a set. You can play a short set to four games if you want to, but you'll play a set of Deuces Are Wild. Deuces Are Wild is really simple. The team when um, choose who's serving first. If the, your team wins two points in a row, you automatically win the game and the serve sw- rotates to the next team. So mm. all you got to do is win two points in a row. Sounds easy, right? Well, it's, you're either going to, you're going to, a lot of times you find yourself winning two points quickly and then your opponent wins two points in a row quickly. Now it's one all sure. on the set. Now, now yeah. you got to start over. Yeah. The, other, the, another game is we, uh, we call this double mo. 
we'll call double momentum. This is a new game I created in the last year or so. We play this all the time with singles and doubles. You have to win two points in a row. So two, remember, two points in a row is called a momentum point. So you have mm-hmm. to win two momentum points, a double mo, to win the game. Mm. So your team can win two points in a row. Your your opponents can win two points in a row. Now it's one momentum point each. The next momentum point, the next team that wins two points in a row wins the game. The serve rotates. The set mm-hmm. score is one zero. Okay. So we'll play games like that where we only focus on the momentum score and winning consecutive points to win the game or win a win a momentum point. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have other games where we integrate the game score into that. So we're kind of keeping track of both. But I would start with those two. This is what the course is going to be about that we're developing. We'll have video of all this. We'll have ex, like detail effort, ex, with detail ex, explanations as well as video, sure. videos about how to play the games. But we found, Will, that the competitive intelligence games, when they are played – they actually look and feel more like the match than the mm-hmm. match itself because it triggers the mental and emotional um, attitudes or feelings that you're feeling when you're actually playing a match. So you're going to feel this pressure of trying to win two points in a row or try to yeah. stop opponents from winning two points in a row. And so games like Deuces are Wild or Double Mo, um, we do have a game called Tsunami. And that's where you win. You win two points in a row, you get a game. If you win the third point in a row, you get an extra game and then the serve switches. So it's oh, wow. we really cool, really cool games that sort of integrate this idea of winning two points in a row, winning three points in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then how that relates to the game score. So you start to you start to perceive the game score as what it is. It's inflated. It's destroyed. If I'm up 40 love, I'm not up 40 to zero. I'm up three zero and I'm in big trouble because the chance of me winning four in a row is very low. So Mm -hmm. how do I I negotiate that? Right. So I negotiate it with really smart, intelligent two shot patterns, starting with my first two, which we call first strike, first strike patterns. So negotiating your winning percentage and using the games is how you create better. uh, 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 You create more intelligent decisions. Mm-hmm. And and this is how you increase your ability as player. Um, the other thing is by playing the games, you really start to pinpoint which shots you're having trouble with, which shots are your technique breaking down on. So we're not ignoring the technical part of the game. We're actually highlighting it in its proper context because we're figuring out what is our technique doing in the context of the game. And, and that's a much more powerful experience than just going out on the practice court and just working on your forehand or working on your serve. Yeah, or just playing set normal sets or of just games. Playing and, a normal, and, playing, yeah, playing a normal set. So yeah. We play actually full sets of double mo or do so well. Sometimes we'll we'll play three. We'll play a total of uh, six games. So when it's three all or four two, mm-hmm. we switch the game. So okay. we'll go from like deuces are wild to double mo because yeah. we mix it up a little bit. Uh, especially sure. the, but but you want to play it long enough so you get the full effect of it. Yeah, right? you don't want to jump from one game to another, back and back and back. You want to spend some time 
experiencing the game and allow the game to reveal to you what's what what the adjustments you need to make in your own game, whether it's uh, tactically or technically. Yeah, combination it, of the. It, it seems like one of the things I, I love about this is it. It seems like it just creates forced concentration or pressure on like almost every point, right? Like whereas if I'm up 30 love and serving and just thinking about like traditional tennis, I'm like, okay, we're up 30 love. Like we can just serve this wherever. And like, like, sure. Poach, why not? We're up 30 love. Like just give it a shot and we'll see what happens. But if we're, if we're like trying to create a conversion point or something, like we're going to, we're going to think a lot harder about like our specific tactic there, which is what we should do because 30 loves a big point, you know, like we, we need to, right. we don't want to take any of these points for granted. So, um, right. yeah, I really, I love that system a lot. Um, I'm going to include in the show notes, um, all that kind of written out in detail, some of the, some of those games. Right. And then of course I'll link to your website and any videos and resources you have as well. I've written them out. So I'll send you that and you can just post that. Okay. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be yep. awesome. Yep. Cool. Okay. Um, so let's just go on to the uh, the rapid fire questions. I know I've got a few more that I sent over to you, but maybe maybe we do a round two at some point. Um, but we're kind of we're, we're running pretty long here. Um, what is uh, what's your favorite tournament? I love Wimbledon. I okay. love the Grand Sl- I love the Grand Slams, but I think Wimbledon is one I, I look forward to. It's actually one I get to watch because usually I'm at the beach, so that's great. Uh, I get to watch nice. the whole thing. I get to watch multiple rounds. Actually, I get to watch some doubles too. Um, I do like to watch Indian Wells too when I, when I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I like the traditions of Wimbledon. You know, yeah. I, I do like some traditions. I think some are valuable. I think a lot need to be questioned. Um, especially yeah. when we play and coach, but I, I do like Wimbledon a lot. Sure. What, uh, what racket do you use currently or what is your, your favorite racket right now? Okay. So the Yonix Ease Zone 98. It yeah. is literally the best racket that I've ever I've ever had in my hand, and I've played yeah. a lot of rackets. But I love that racket for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it 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 does have natural power built into the frame, so you don't have to swing mm-hmm. as hard. It's a it's forgiving. It's a soft racket frame. It's not too stiff. It has the expanded sweet spot because of the Yonix technology of the flat rim. But it's funny. I I actually. Um, Gosh, his name goes away from right now, and he's going to kill me. But he was a Yonix rep years and years ago, probably like six years ago, and mm-hmm. at PTR. And I said, you know, I want to change rackets. So I, I started studying, I started looking at Yonix, and I picked up one. I fell in love with the Yonix brand, um, and, I, mm-hmm. and I played everything. But I, I do like that. I do like yeah. that rack. Yeah, that is a good one. Um, what is your your favorite tennis book other than uh, your own books? Winning Ugly. I winning love ugly. winning ugly by Brad yeah. McGill. I I do. I think it points out a lot of things we should already be thinking about, but we maybe overlook. But that is my favorite book by far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great one. It's a good intro into. I feel like uh, um, opponent based thinking as well. Yes. Uh, yes. He he talks a lot about that. Um, so last question: How do we make doubles more popular? Oh my gosh, this was a long <laughs> answer, but. I'm going to try to speed this one through. What's interesting, I, I listened to the podcast with you with Ben Rothenberg. Is it Rothenberg? Yeah, Rothenberg. That was a yeah. very that's very interesting perspective. But two things that came to mind. You talked about the Bryan brothers. So 
There's two ways to become a star in tennis. You got to either have a personality or you got to you got to have performance, right? Mm-hmm. To become a superstar, you got to have both. One yeah. thing about the Bryan brothers it, that makes them so attractive, and I actually talked to this. I talked to my 16-year-old son about this. I said, Pierce, and he's a tennis player. He's a nationally ranked junior, right? So he's going to nationally watch tennis. I said, what's going to get you to watch doubles? He says, well, um, I asked him if he knew the Bryan brothers. He's like, yeah, I've heard of them. <laughs> I said, okay, what if I were to told you, tell you, Pierce, that the Bryan brothers are twins? He goes, oh. I said, one's a left-handed player, one's a righty. He goes, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and I said, and they have flamboyant personalities. Like they they chest bump after points yeah. and they're just into it. I said, would you want to watch a Brian Brothers uh, doubles match? He goes, absolutely. That would be very <laughs> entertaining. This is a 16-year-old kid. Yeah. Boy, right? Now, if we want to change doubles and make it more entertaining, more interesting, we're going to have to do some radical things, right? Or we can keep it the status quo and it's going to go the way it's going to go. But for me, like if I see something that is flailing and not doing too well, Mm -hmm. I'm the type of person I'm like, all right, let's make a change. I mean, you know, what you got to make a change if you want change to happen. Right. So Mm -hmm. as a doubles player, you got to either become a personality like Nick Kyrgios, he's mm-hmm. not one. He's he's won matches, but he's never won a Grand Slam. He's never won. I think I yeah. don't think he's ever not won singles. One thousand yeah. right in singles, but he's mm-hmm. won it in doubles, right? But his mm-hmm. personality attracts people to watch him. He's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know what's funny is I watched Coco Golf and Pagula mm-hmm. play some doubles matches at the, at the U.S. Open on TV, and yeah. the reason why I watch them is they're both interesting players to me. Obviously, Coco, her attraction is she's young, she's ready to go, she's mm-hmm. a powerful player. Pagula has come up through the ranks, you know, and she's making a way of her own. And these two Matt team up, they were so much fun to watch. They look like they were having so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um the commentators of doubles could make a big difference. You know, you should get John yeah. McEnroe and like Adam Sandler, honestly. Yeah. Like you should get a comedian up there. Somebody who doesn't even know anything about tennis. Yeah. yeah. Format yeah. in doubles. I say change to f- short sets of four. Go no okay. ad scoring. Tiebreaker is the third set, right? 10 point tiebreaker. Get the match to last around 45 minutes. And, oh, and interesting. You know, what, you know what's interesting? Here's a, here's hmm. one. At the Grand Slams, have the quarterfinals and the semifinals and the finals of the men's and women's doubles or even some mixed doubles if you want to do that. Have them be a part, have that have that final men's doubles be at the beginning of the men's finals and have it be a part of the same ticket. So if mm-hmm. you buy a ticket to the men's finals, you're automatically going to see the men's doubles finals and it's going to happen right before the match. Yeah. And so it's they, do, they do the women's, they reverse it right now. So like the, it? it depends on the tournament. Some yeah. tournaments will do women's doubles finals after the men's singles final, and some yeah. do the women's doubles final before the men's singles final. And and sometimes it's like way earlier in the day. So people who show up 
30 well, minutes before the men's singles final, don't see the women's doubles at all. No, no. So, you, you yeah, there's got to be some overlap. you got yeah. gr- to group it together. Look, you got to yeah. take that, which is not so popular, and yeah. you need to you need to hitch your trailer onto yeah. that, which is popular, right? Yeah. Singles is very popular for the reasons you, you and Ben talked about, right? Mm-hmm. But you, you've got to do, you've got to rebrand something that's kind of flailing, you know, a fish yeah. out of water, right? I don't want to yeah. say it's failing, but it is flailing, right? <laughs> the other thing I talked to Pierce about, I go, hey, Pierce, what if, what would it, what would it, if you were watching a doubles match and you didn't know any of the players' names, they're all pro players. Let's just take, you know, men, for instance. You have four guys, right? You don't know any of that. What would cause you to watch that match? He goes, well, dad, it would have to be short. So four sets, no, or four, um, four game sets. Four game sets, yeah. No dad scoring. You win at five four if it's four all. Play the tiebreaker, ten point time. He goes, it's got to be short number. And the second thing is, you know, what would be interesting, dad, is mic up the players. I want to hear what they're saying to yeah. their partner. I want to hear them, you know, getting on their partner for missing that volley. I want to, I want to hear sort of what they're doing. You know, what's their strategy? He said yeah. that would be really interesting. That would be more like a show. Um, it is interesting. I don't watch baseball, but I caught this uh, baseball game one day on TV. And I think I was on vacation since the middle of the day. And they had mic'd up the shortstop. I forget mm-hmm. the guy's name. He's unbelievable. He's literally mic'd up and they're playing an actual game. And he's yeah. sitting having a conversation with the commentators back and yeah, forth. Yeah. And he goes, wait a minute, here, I got to get this one because the ball's hit to him. He goes, wait, hold on a minute. He runs over, hits <laughs> the ball, throws the guy out, and then he starts picks up his conversation back with the commentators. I'm like, wait a minute. That's so good. This guy is a professional. Yeah. And this is what we, you know what's interesting? We should, because, look, singles is serious. We got serious money at play. We got right. serious endorsements. Doubles? Not so much right now. It, it could turn into that, but not so much. So let's treat doubles and let's 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 get it more entertaining. Okay, mm-hmm. let's let's get the stock up in doubles, right? And the only way you're going to be able to do that is you're going to have to do some some radical things like this to get mm-hmm. people's attention, right? You have to get people's attention, especially young people or even older people like me, right? Like I'm 55, man. I'm old. <laughs> Come on, you got to get my attention. So so I would say that. You know, the doubles players, you know, if they're in this environment, they should be able to, like, have a conversation, talk to the commentators and still be able to play. They should Mm -hmm. still be able to perform. And honestly, you know, their performance is they're taking it seriously, obviously, because it's their livelihood. But do they want to really make an impact? Like, do they want to make more money? The other thing mm-hmm. that Pierce suggests is they should all, their shirt should be littered with like sponsors, like uh, NASCAR drivers or Formula yeah. One drivers. Like, cool. man, just yeah. load up those shirts, bro. Yeah. And, but, but sponsors are not going to put their logo on guys, you know, the player's shirts if there's nobody watching. So yeah. you first, you first got to link these doubles matches to singles matches in some way. You've got to find a more a, a way that they can play competitively, but shorten the match so it's not so long, and then and then you can you can introduce other things in certain mm-hmm. venues like music and things like that. You guys suggested, but it's got to be entertaining, right? 
The Bryan brothers are the exception. They're twins. They're right and lefty. They're entertaining. The Jensen brothers, they were they were entertaining. Yeah. Other, other teams find a way to bring out their personalities. Mm-hmm. But, you know, honestly, you know, getting um, – We just I need mean, to start all, experimenting early. Yeah, you've got to experiment yeah. because otherwise yeah. you're just going to have what you have, right? right. And that's it's fine with me. I mean, but if you want me <laughs> to watch more doubles, then <laughs> – Let's go. Try some new stuff. Let's try I hear some you. New stuff. I hear you. Awesome. Um, that's a great answer. I, I really um, agree with a lot of what you said. And it, yeah, we've got to, like I talked about with Ben, it's got to be kind of a Petri dish for experimentation yeah. um, and separate itself from singles in, in that way. But Will, it um, could be fun. This all yeah, could be fun exactly. experience for the players. Got I guarantee it. you the players, yeah, they're not making a lot of money. But if they're having fun at what they're doing, they actually might start making more money. They'll make more, yeah. Because they mm-hmm. will attract the eyes and ears of people, and the sponsors will come, and they will actually have a more enjoyable life as a doubles player on tour because it'll be more fun. Yeah. You know, one, and th- this is the thing that we talk about with our junior players. You know, you, you've got to get out there. You've got to have fun at this game. And this is why we created the different games that are actual related to what you experience in the match. So they're real games. They're not fake games. They're not just feel good games, yeah. but they are, they are fun. And so this is, this is something that if we start going in this direction, I think only positive things can come of it. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Sounds like my dogs are barking. So uh got to run here. Sterling. Thanks so much for um, joining us today. I think there's there's a lot of great information here that that people are going to get out of this episode. So I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks, Will, for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Doubles Only Podcast. If you're interested in diving deeper into any topics I discuss, I've created double strategy products that allow me to bring you more podcasts and other doubles content without relying on paid ads. I have ebooks and courses that help you make better strategic decisions during matches and become the smartest player on the court. Go to thetennistribe.com slash products to learn more. You can also join my free weekly double strategy newsletter that includes video lessons and more on our homepage. If you want to connect, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email me directly, will at thetennistribe.com.